0: Legacy Podcasts present "Torque," a novel by Ty Drego, performed for you by the author, and featuring music by Nicholas Allen Nelson. The Fifteenth Cog Ms. Ainsley, your father wants a word. Alarmed, Ainsley looked up sharply at the butler, but as always, Frederick's face was unreadable. She'd been playing keepers with Gerard in the boy's room, with toys scattered around them on the metal floor. It had been nice, but now Ainsley felt her stomach lurch. What's he want? Stupid. Even if the butler knew he wouldn't tell her. Frederick Bells had been in her father's employee since before Ainsley was born. That was common practice. Well paid and well treated, servants tended to remain in service their entire lives, often intermarrying and having children who eventually inherited their parents' position. Frederick was married to Eunice, the cook. So far they were childless, which was a shame, particularly for Gerard, who had few playmates. I don't know, miss, Frederick replied, but he insisted you come at once. Gerard complained. You're ruining the game, Frederick. My apologies, Master Gerard. You're fired, the boy snapped, putting his fists on his hips. He was cute when he did that. Yes, Master Gerard, the butler replied. I'll pack my bags immediately. Despite her unease, Ainsley had a stifle a laugh. A week had gone by since the events in the middle market, and so far she'd gotten away with it. She and Julia and Keeper Percy had met outside the dresser's shop as planned. Thankfully, both of them had missed Ainsley's near whipping and Torque's impossible reappearance. They did, however, notice that Ainsley's dress was torn, but she quickly concocted a story about tearing it on a clothes rack and having her maid mend it, which seemed to satisfy them. The three of them had then ridden the lift back to the uppers, leaving all of Ainsley's terror and wonder below them. Since then, Ainsley had struggled to make sense of it all. As things stood, her unfocused personal mission, to better understand Ken, the machine and its people had ground to a halt. Returning to the middle market had become problematic. News of Torque's resurrection had spread quickly, prompting the keepers to tighten security. All miners now needed signed parental permission to ride the lifts. For the time being, Ainsley was stuck up here. "'Do you have to go, Ainsley?' Gerard asked her tearfully. It was his favorite manipulative tactic. "'Do what I want or I'll cry.' It still worked on some members of the staff and occasionally on Ainsley herself. She replied, "'I'll be back as soon as I can.'" "'But the keepers still have to save the upper lady from the grabbers,' Gerard insisted, motioning at the collection of cast-iron miniatures littering the floor." Ainsley was half hoping that, while she was gone, the boy would get distracted by some new activity. It was hard to think of keepers as heroes anymore. Why don't you tell me later how the keeper stayed the day, all right? He nodded, looking miserable. Ainsley followed Frederick downstairs and along the corridor leading to her father's study. As they passed the butler's closet, Frederick remarked without turning, "'By the way, miss,' The next time you need to use the gabaphone, I suggest you ask Emma. It's inappropriate for an upper lady to do such things herself. For several heartbeats, Ainsley didn't respond. Then, squaring her shoulders, she replied, And the next time you lecture me on manners, Frederick, I'll speak to my father about replacing you. He nodded appreciatively. Very good, miss. Very stern. Well done. Do you think that tone will work with father? It would be amusing to watch you try. When they reached the study door, Frederick knocked. Softly, politely. Yes, came a deep voice from within. It's Frederick, my lord. I have Miss Ainsley. Send her in, please. Frederick opened the door and stepped aside to allow Ainsley to pass. Their eyes met. Good luck, his expression said. Ainsley's heart sank. Then she was alone in the study with her father. August Pinkerton, wearing a tailored suit and waistcoat, stood beside the liquor cabinet, having just poured something brown into a crystal tumbler. This worried Ainsley. It wasn't lunch yet. "'Ainsley,' he said, the Pinkerton version of good-morning. "'Father,' she replied, "'you wanted to see me.' He nodded. "'Honestly, I've been putting this off.' "'Putting what off?' "'There it is again.' "'It? I just got a whiff of your perfume. It's the same as your mother's, isn't it?' "'And it was.' Since Marie Pinkerton's death, Ainsley had worn the expensive fragrance on and off for years, despite her father's insistence that she was too young for such things. "'I'm sorry,' Ainsley said. "'I know you don't like—' he made a dismissive gesture. "'You're seventeen. However, it occurs to me that I've noticed that lovely scent a lot lately, and right here in this study.' Ainsley suddenly kenned where this was going. "'Father, I—' "'The first time was last week. After my meeting—' with Proctor Baird and Commandant Gammon ended. That time the whiff of perfume was faint, but I was sure it came from that little vent, there, beside the bookcase. Ainsley made a show of looking, though of course she knew exactly which vent. The second time, he went on, was the following morning, a bit heavier. Whomever had worn it had obviously visited my study without my permission. A cursory check showed that my ledgers had been disturbed. One in particular had been put back in the wrong place. Ainsley sometimes wore her mother's perfume to bed, especially when she was anxious about something. She found the scent comforting. But now all the blood drained from her face. There could be no excuse, no defense for what she'd done. Then her father said, "'I'm sorry, Ainsley.' She blinked. "'What?' "'I'm sorry for what you overheard, and for what you had to discover on your own. Mostly, I'm sorry about Stuart.' Tears came, though if asked, she couldn't have said exactly what she was crying about. Stuart's death, her father's secrets, her own guilt. She struggled to remain calm, to be the upper lady he wanted her to be. But then he opened his arms to her. Sobbing, she ran to him. August Pinkerton had never been a particularly affectionate man, which made this simple gesture all the more precious. He held her without saying a word, letting her sob against his waistcoat. Finally, when Ainsley felt wrung out and empty, he guided her to one of the chairs near the hearth and had her sit. Then he handed her a clean handkerchief, along with a tumbler of whiskey. Drink this. Dabbing at her eyes and feeling ridiculous, Ainsley said, What? I poured it for you. I know you're a little young, but it'll help calm your nerves. She accepted the heavy glass and sipped its contents. The stuff tasted awful, but then she swallowed and felt an unexpected warmth fill her belly. That she liked, so she took another sip and then another. Finally, her father put his hand over the glass. I want you calm, not unconscious, child. Nurse it. When she nodded, he took a seat in the next chair. For several seconds, they sat in companionable silence, father and daughter, both Pinkertons. Finally, he said, I know some of what happened to you last week in the middle market. At that, Ainsley almost took another drink, but stopped herself. Oh? She cleared her throat. How? Investigation. Tork's sudden reappearance was, of course, covered by the watch, though I've allowed only a small part of the story to reach print. That lower girl, Lucy Stamper, was identified. So were the two boys she cares for. However, nobody could name the other girl the witnesses described, the one wearing the clothes of an upper lady. So I had someone speak to the keeper's station at the market lifts. Eventually, they found a young keeper called Percy. Ainsley started to respond, but he denied her the chance. By talking with Julia's father, I learned about the gabaphone call you made from Frederick's office. Frederick was amused. I wasn't. But Frederick, ever the voice of reason, advised me that your unwise decisions might have stemmed from grief, not foolish adolescent rebellion. You see, I also found out about your brush with Stuart on the day he died. He called you by name, and you guessed who he was. Oh, Ainsley muttered a second time. Tell me, child, did you really think you wouldn't be caught? "'especially after all the fuss that Torque's sudden reappearance conjured up?' "'Ainsley took another drink before answering. "'When I planned it, I thought Tork was dead. "'But no, that wasn't quite right, was it? "'I mean, I thought Stuart was dead and that the Tork myth died with him.' "'The Tork myth,' her father echoed. "'Then, carefully, he asked, "'How much of my meeting with the Proctor and the Commandant did you overhear?' "'Ainsley didn't, couldn't answer.' All of it? he pressed. She nodded. Including what happened to the young keeper? Yes. August Pinkerton sighed miserably. I'm so sorry. The last thing I wanted was for you to have to bear that burden. Questions churned through Ainsley's mind. Would she ever get a chance like this again? So, with her nerve bolstered, she supposed, by the warmth of her father's liquor, she asked the first of them Why did Stuart become Torque? The Sixteenth Cog. Her father said, You saw the ledger for yourself. All it told me was that you hired him to become the Lower's champion. But why would you do that? And why would he accept? Was it because I broke off our engagement? Ainsley read his surprise and realized her mistake. She suddenly understood why people said that liquor loosened lips. You broke it off? Stewart told me it was him. Ainsley groaned inwardly. Then she revealed what she'd never told anyone. It was Stuart's idea. He thought it'd be easier on my reputation if everyone thought he'd broken up with me. Then something occurred to her that hadn't before. But maybe he just said that because he was thinking of his own reputation. Her father studied her. It was a good match for you, but an even better one for him. So you might be right about his motivation. But why keep this from me? I was afraid of what you'd say. You were so set on the marriage. Only for your sake. I know. I'm sorry, Father. I just... I didn't love him. Love. Your generation puts too much weight on that. Honestly, Ainsley, love isn't really as important as you think it should be. Your mother and I didn't love each other when we said our vows before Jai. All that came later. I know. She'd heard the story a hundred times. I was angry with Stuart when he came to tell me your engagement was off. I thought he'd just broken my daughter's heart. I see now that you'd broken his heart. You may not have loved him, child, but he loved you. Ainsley nodded guiltily. August Pinkerton added, If I'd known you were the one who'd ended it, I might never have... Ainsley looked horrified. You made him torque to get back at him for hurting me? After some rumination, he shook his head. Not really. I'd always thought he'd wear the gilded armor well, naturally athletic and physically strong, but I never offered it to him because doing so would take him away from you. Then, when things changed... "'Well, it seemed like a good solution all around. "'By coincidence, the previous torque had just been injured and required replacing. "'Stewart needed a position, and the two of you needed distance. Ideal.' "'His eyes lowered to the glass in his hand. "'I gave you that because I thought you were in grief. "'But that wasn't the real reason for your tears, was it?' "'No,' she admitted. "'He waited. She said, "'I haven't been able to sleep. "'Every time I close my eyes I see—' "'See what, Ainsley?' See that keeper with the whip in his hand. Whip? So Ainsley told him all of it, the entire story about her adventure in the middle market, watching his face turn red with outrage. They nearly whipped you, he exclaimed. Torque rescued me. Rescued all of us. My investigators turned up nothing about a whipping. The keepers involved must have closed ranks. When I find out who... Then he suddenly seemed to deflate before Ainsley's eyes, his anger melting into something else. Something less. August Pinkerton looked helpless. Ainsley, I need you to make me a promise. But she said, First, tell me about Project Torque." He didn't respond, so she plowed on. You've kept the lie going since before I was born, during the whole time Mother was campaigning for reform in the Lowers, through all those fights you two had about it. He scowled. I'm not accustomed to being questioned by you, Ainsley. You're not accustomed to people being murdered under your roof, either, she replied well aware that she was crossing a line she never had before. Maybe the world is changing. Her words seemed to give him pause. "'Everything I did was to avoid bloodshed,' he told her, or maybe told himself, "'for the good of the machine.' "'Lying to everyone was good for the machine?' She expected his anger to return. It didn't. "'It's the only thing your mother and I ever argued over. She was such an idealist, a progressive, but she didn't understand certain realities.' His eyes found hers. I'm afraid you've inherited that same misguided outlook. Misguided? Father, I was nearly whipped by keepers. Three others, too, and all because a starving boy tried to steal a handful of sweetmeats. Given that, how can you call what Mother was trying to do misguided? August Pinkerton stood up and started pacing in front of her. He looked not merely upset, but frightened. You don't understand, he said. Neither did she, though I tried many times to explain things to her. Explain what? Ainsley, he said, stopping and facing her. Do you know how many people live in the machine? And she did, having learned the number in school. About fifty thousand. Ten thousand upper folk and forty thousand lower folk. He shook his head. That's the official number, but it only includes those lower folk the census takers are able to reach. The census takers are upper folk, of course, and so won't venture much below the middle market. The actual number is much higher. How much higher? Best guess? Nearly a quarter million. Oh, she said. Oh, indeed. And what's more, more than ninety-five of our population lives below the market. That's a steep ratio, Ainsley, and it's growing steeper. Each year, more babies are born down there, most of them into desperate poverty. Pals, rats, Ainsley said. A crude label. But one they use themselves, she told him. Very well. The fact is, out of the multitude of lower folk, only a tiny percentage of them are traders or factory workers— Do you know the role of the rest, the so-called bowels rats like Miss Stamper? Role? I didn't know they had one. Almost no one knows, but they do. They warm us, Ainsley. Their sheer numbers, their collective body heat, trapped in the lowers and harvested by the heat exchangers, is what keeps the uppers warm. Father, Ainsley stammered, stunned. I never thought— It's why their population is allowed to grow. But about twenty years ago, the government began to fear that it had grown too much— which is why I started Project Torque. I don't understand, Ainsley said. The lower folk outnumber us 25 to 1. Can you imagine what would happen if they ever realized that? Ainsley stared at him, dumbfounded. So he answered for her. It might start with factory strikes, quotas unmet. After that, riots could follow, and eventually revolution. He shook his head. We live here at the top of our world on this sunlit and landscaped roof with our wealth and our servants and our fine food yet so few of us understand how tenuous our situation is. A mile below us is an army of starving, desperate souls who, if we push them too far, will rise up and come for us. Ainsley said, So Tork was a false hero to keep them from what? Revolting? Yes. Peace without violence. True it was a lie, but it worked for a very long time. Then Stuart died. Poor Stuart. Ainsley felt gripped by a poignant regret. She hadn't loved him, but she'd cared for him, and he'd deserved better than she'd given him. Father? Yes, Ainsley. Was his body recovered? August Pinkerton considered. Then he said gravely, What I'm about to say needs to be kept between us. That's important, child. This information cannot leave this room. You can't tell anyone. Not Frederick, not your friends. No one. I understand. Promise me, Ainsley. I promise. He nodded, satisfied. Stewart's body was found in the quarters that were established for Torque decades ago, back when the project first began. He was on his bed, arms folded across his chest, and except for Keeper Reynolds' bullet wound, there wasn't a mark on him. Ainsley struggled to process this. But he fell down the drop. Yes. Almost a mile. But he wasn't alone, was he? Ainsley stared at him, her drink forgotten. Rand Roberts, her father nodded. You think they survived the fall? "'Someone carried poor Stuart to his quarters and laid him out respectfully on his bed. "'But how?' I can't say. "'Torque's pipe was advanced, Mech. Absolutely state-of-the-art. "'Perhaps Stuart used it to somehow break their fall. "'He'd been shot!' He had indeed, "'and the nature of his wound suggests he died quickly from blood loss. "'So perhaps Ainsley suddenly kenned. Rand Roberts is the new Torque! "'That's my suspicion.' He donned a hodgepodge of stolen armor from previous Torques, and using the pipe has been making quite a go of it. What do you mean? I've kept this out of the watch, but Torque's been busy. He visits the middle market almost daily, confronting any keepers who exercise their order-keeping regiment particularly harshly. So far, he's put 30 of them in the hospital, with anything from scalding burns to broken bones. The new Torque is a fighter, and a capable one at that. Ainsley recalled what Rand did to the dozen armed men who'd been there for her whipping. What's more, her father said, with each visit, he's been giving coin to the lower folk. A lot of it. Coin that he could only have gotten from the stores kept in Tork's quarters. She remembered the pouch Tork gave to Lucy. And things are worsening, he continued. The lower folk have their champion back better than ever, and since they now have coin to spend, far fewer are reporting for factory work. Quotas are being missed. And each time measures are taken to address the lapse, Tork appears to stop those measures. He's even started making speeches, I'm told. Clumsy, naive sermons about personal dignity and basic rights or some such. Mother would have approved, Ainsley remarked. I suppose she would at that. But she'd have been wrong. This rabble-rousing is going to lead to a catastrophe. Strikes, Ainsley said. Riots. Revolution. Except Gammon will never let it get that far. With the proctor's blessing, he's ordered that Torque be shot on sight. No more attempts at capture. Is that even legal? Ainsley asked, horrified. Necessity trumps legality, child. Understand that. Gammon and Baird will go to any lengths to subjugate the lower folk, and the kill order on Torque is only the least of it. Ainsley stared at him, putting it together. Project Vindicator, she said. Her father looked sharply at her. Those are two words I never want to hear you utter again. Father, no, listen to me. If the keepers hear you so much as mention that travesty, I won't be able to protect you. Change is coming, frightening change. I've been doing my best to forestall it, but I'm losing. So you must make me this promise, and another as well. She nodded. Don't go down to the middle again, not for any reason. Do your shopping here, in the uppers. I don't care about the expense. Ainsley nodded again. Promise me, child. I want to hear you say it. So she did. I promise, father. Except she knew it was a lie. Rand Roberts was Torque. She'd half-suspected it all week, ever since he'd rescued her from the Keepers. His size, his intelligent brown eyes, they all reminded her of the huge boy she'd seen on the day Stuart died. And now Commandant Gammon had ordered his murder. The usual game of hide-and-find was over. Rand Roberts needed to be warned. Her mother, Ainsley knew, would understand. The 17th cog. Flying practice. Though Rand supposed flying probably wasn't the right word for it. What Torque actually did was ride a burst of steam strong enough to overcome his body weight. The direction of travel depended on the angle of the pipe when the steam lever was triggered, combined with the upper body strength of the LUD in the armor, which was where the practice came into it. Rand did this in the knot at the base of the drop. No Name had shown him the way back here through the maze of tunnels and had taught him how to draw light runes along the way to keep the grabbers at bay. Since then, they'd been coming here daily. It was the only place they'd found with enough privacy and space for torque training. You just had to be mindful of falling crap. Lots of crap. Literally. Now, with No Name watching patiently from the safety of the tunnel entrance, Rand launched himself, picking an angle that would carry him up to a jagged pipe shard jutting out of the wall 30 feet above the floor. He reached it, hooked it with his free hand, changed his angle, and fired again. This time, the force of the steam against the drop's smooth metal wall lifted him to a dangling bit of cable another thirty feet up. Sixty feet in two bursts. Not good, he complained downward. Even if the pipe could hold enough steam cartridges, it'd still take me too long to reach the middle market. The Ludling called back, Then go straight up! Sighing, Rand released the cable and used a burst of steam to ease his fall to the floor. Once there, he said, you aren't getting it. The steam won't last long enough. A really long burst might get me as far as a hundred feet, maybe 125, but then I'd drop like a stone. So what? You figured being torque would be easy? No-Name asked with a chuckle. Why not just keep doing what you've been doing? Head up through the bowels. But what if something really bad's happening and I need to get there fast? If something bad does happen and you aren't there in the first place, how would you know about it? It was a good point. Shut up, Rand said. Being Torque was turning out to be more complicated than he'd thought. After moving Torque's effects to the new flop, he and No Name had explored the lit tunnel that the old Torque had used and discovered it led to, of all things, a lift, the only one in the lowers. Small and well hidden, and just big enough for one person, it rose through many levels before eventually depositing its rider in a concealed alcove behind an unused gearbox in the Middle's factory district. This was how Torque had magically appeared and disappeared. However, while the lift was convenient, it was also slow, taking almost half an hour to climb the mile from the old places to the market. Of course, old Torque hadn't been in any particular hurry. Rand's Torque, however, needed a quicker route. The fastest I can get from the flop to the black is fifteen minutes, Rand said, more or less thinking aloud. Add another twelve to reach the middle market. Not too bad, No-Name pointed out. But not good enough. In the old stories, Torque could fly. Not ride bursts of steam, but genuinely fly. So, fly, No-Name said flatly. Rand laughed. If only. Together they returned to the flop. No-Name watched as Rand drew a light rune inside the gearbox by tracing the correct symbol with his finger, just as the Ludling had shown him. You say anyone can do this? Sure. Anywhere in the machine? Yeah. How do you know? Rand pressed as they both stepped into the now-lighted gearbox. I just do. The new flop was smaller than old Tork's quarters had been. Even so, it had taken Rand and No Name a few days to make the space livable. Rats had taken up residence, and chasing them out and cleaning up after them had turned into a serious chore. The place still stank of their urine. But any home was better than none at all, and this was the closest Rand had ever come to having one. By the time they were done, Rand had set up a pair of hammocks using linens from Tork's drawers. With the dead hero's books, coin, and spare pieces of armor stashed away in convenient niches. They'd been lucky there, having gotten everything they wanted out of old Tork's place just before someone, keepers presumably, showed up to find their fallen lud laid out on his bed. "'Tork's dead,' No-Name had whispered, as they watched from the safety of a darkened tunnel while the upper folk investigated the scene. "'Long live Tork!' "'Sure,' Rand had replied. Now he pulled off his armor and dropped gratefully onto his hammock. The Ludling, as was his way, stood by and watched him. "'You must find me fascinating,' Rand joked. "'Yeah,' No-Name answered with strange seriousness. "'Why?' "'Because your biggest complaint about flying is that you can't fly far enough. Because you take on ten armed men and win every time, and still consider yourself a lousy torque. The Ludling was talking old again. No-Name had been doing this more and more often, almost as if in the beginning he'd only been pretending to be a Ling.' Anyone can be Torque, Rand said dismissively, feeling the gentle, comforting sway of the hammock. It beats sleeping on piles of oily rags or the bare metal floor any day. Can they? The armor and the pipe make it easy. If you say so, the Ludling muttered, sounding exasperated. What's wrong? Nothing. Then, after a long, theatrical sigh that made Rand wonder which of them was really the Ludling around here, No Name asked, How are your letters coming? Okay. Recite the alphabet for me rand ran through the letters from memory there were 24 of them good now read to me rand looked over to see that no name had picked up a book and was holding it out expectantly it was open to a random page groaning rand took the book and read aloud he tripped over some of the words though fewer than yesterday and the day before that but it was still difficult and after five pages he stopped more no name said later come on keep reading to me drop it I thought you wanted to learn to read, No-Name remarked, sounding confused. I do, it's just hard. So is riding a pipe through open air. That comes easy to me, it's really just mech, but written words, they feel more like magic, and magic always makes me nervous. I told you, the Ludling replied, there's no such thing as magic. It was a ridiculous statement to make, since Rand had seen magic at work with his own eyes. Look at the light runes, and they were only the least of it. "'How come none of the letters in the primer look like the light rune symbol?' he asked. "'The runes are in a different language,' No-Name said. "'An older one. I used to know what it was called. "'For now, let's just call it the Old Tongue. "'It's got twenty-six letters, not twenty-four like the one in your primers.' "'How do you know all that?' the lulling shrugged. "'We were talking about you learning to read. "'I told you, words, magic, they bother me.' "'Didn't you say Lucy was a healer?' Doesn't she use magic? But I don't like to watch her do it. It's creepy. Has she ever healed you? Plenty of times, Rand admitted. But something can be necessary and still creepy. The Ludling processed that. Okay, let's forget the whole magic thing for right now. Words on a page are totally different. They don't do anything. They're just words. They make me nervous. You cheerfully attack a dozen keepers, No-Name laughed. But some letters scare you? I didn't say scare. Then after a pause, Rand decided to come clean. They make me feel stupid. Why? I don't know, they just do. It's not about stupid. You don't know how to read because up until now there's never been anyone to teach you. No shame in that. The stupid thing would be letting that stop you now that you have the chance to learn. Don't rear me, you're half my age. No reply. Who are you, Rand demanded. Who are you? That's not an answer. No Name shrugged. I didn't promise you an answer. But I'll promise you this. When you tell me who you really are, then I'll tell you who I really am. Rand said. So you are more than just a luddling bowels rat. I'd be worried if you hadn't ken that by now. Tell me who you are. No Name shook his head. Please. Not yet. Aren't we friends? Rand asked. Yeah, No Name said. We are friends are honest with each other do you and lucy always tell each other the truth sure then why haven't you let her know you're alive i told you said defensively it's to protect her it's still a lie you're a pain in the ass do you know that and you're torque okay what's that supposed to mean only that torque shouldn't be hiding away down here arguing with the likes of me he should be out and about doing torque things i've been doing torque things all week No-Name said, "'Yeah, but today you spent the entire morning practicing. Time to go do something real.' "'Is there something specific you think needs doing, or should I stick to the same, slamming keepers, spreading coin around, and generally making trouble for the upper lords?' "'All of the above.' "'All right, then,' Rand jumped to his feet. At least their frustrating conversation was over, for now. "'I'll head up to the Black and look for trouble. Want to come with me? I can carry you and work the pipe at the same time.' "'Nope. Thanks.' I can, trust me. I do trust you, no told him. But I don't want to travel that way. Go on ahead, I'll find you. I swear, you seem to be able to move around the bowels and lowers almost as fast as I do. The Ludling's grin looked perfectly natural on his eight-year-old face, but the eyes behind that grin, once again, were old. See you later, Tork. Rand redonned his armor and left the flop bound for the black. On the way he fretted. No Name liked commenting on how fearless Rand was, but secretly, Rand knew plenty of fear. Oh, not for life and limb. For some reason, the dread of death never bothered him. Instead, he feared for Lucy and the twins, his family, if Tork's new identity should become known. He also feared screwing up, making a mistake as Tork that got someone killed. Mostly, though, he feared tomorrow, and the same questions each day brought. Why was he doing this? What did he hope to accomplish? It was hard to do what felt right when you weren't sure what right felt like. When all this had started just a week ago, Rand had only wanted to keep the Tork legend alive. But he'd quickly realized that his usual good deeds carried much more weight as Tork than as Rand Roberts. These days, every move he made was talked about, gossiped over, and often exaggerated. All because he wore the Gilded Armor. As Rand Roberts, he'd always dreamed of the day when Tork would lead the lowers in glorious revolution. Now he was watching that revolution start to happen, whether he'd intended it or not. The lower folk were becoming emboldened, and sooner or later, the keepers would retaliate. Then people would start dying. But what if he stopped? What if Torque just vanished again without explanation? Would that be any better? So, yeah, he had plenty of fear. He reached the black awash in white steam and perched himself atop one of the surrounding roofs. Below, the illegal marketplace currently occupied a large-ish knot nestled in amongst a dozen big gearboxes like this one. There were four ways, in or out, one roughly at each corner of the knot, though Rand knew of a few hidden entrances as well. He'd used one of them just now, getting here. Unlike the middle market, the black frequently moved from place to place throughout the lowers. Each time the keepers shut it down, a new one would pop up elsewhere. It was precarious, but necessary, since the black was where most of the lower folk bartered to live. The marketplace was always busy, with thousands of lower folk browsing, trading, and arguing. There were frequently fistfights, and of course the stainers were forever trying to rob the patrons or bully the merchants. Old Torque had never come down here. Well, this one did. Over the next hour, Rand repeatedly leapt down into the black. The first few times were to thwart some stainer mischief. Occasionally, he'd stepped in when the argument turned ugly. It was the same sort of thing he'd done as Rand Roberts, though wearing Tork's armor made it easier. Just his appearance, as dramatic as possible, often proved enough to diffuse whatever trouble brewed, sending the opposite parties packing, frustrated or disgruntled, perhaps, but unhurt. When you were a legend, it seemed, luds get out of your way. Then, about halfway through his second hour, Rand spotted her. The upper lass. Ainsley. Here. In the black. At first, he couldn't believe it. Upper folk didn't come down here. Ever. It wasn't merely not done, but amounted to near-certain suicide. Even keepers only ever visited the black and large numbers and then to shut it down. She might as well be wearing a sign reading, Dead me and take my stuff. Except, of course, that lower folk couldn't read. Rand noticed that she'd taken steps to try to blend in. She was barefoot and wore a simple canvas frock that she'd probably purchased up in the middle market. Her hair, instead of being curled and carefully styled, hung straight around her face and down to her shoulders. It was a good try, but the disguise didn't go nearly far enough. She still walked like an upper lady, with her back straight and her shoulders squared. Lower folk tended to be stooped. Hard labor did that to you. Also, her toes were painted. Painted, for Root's sake. Unfortunately, if Rand noticed these discrepancies, others would too. Sure enough, as the last moved deeper into the black, a brace of stainers spotted her. They nudged one another and started closing in, their intentions pretty clear. Rand steam vaulted. The shops of the market, most little more than old crates with slabs of rusted metal laid atop them to make counters, rushed below. Faces, dozens of them, turned upwards in interest, and yes, welcome. Torque was back again. The upper lass hadn't spotted him being intent on whatever idiotic purpose had brought her here. The stainers hadn't seen him either, being fully focused on their hunt. So, as Rand reached the top of his arc and felt gravity tug at him, he turned his feet downward and readied his pipe. The stainers closed in on the lass, who screamed in alarm. "'What do we have here?' Rand heard one of them say. Then Rand landed on him. Gilded boots hit thin but muscled shoulders, flattening the stainer to the floor of the knot. He let out a sound like a pressed bellows. Then he lay still. The upper lass stared at Rand. Rand, in turn, stared at the second stainer and raised his pipe. Nothing needed to be said. The stainer took off running. His would-be victim swayed on her feet. Shock, probably. So Rand stepped up and steadied her with a gloved hand at her elbow. You shouldn't be here, he said. She looked at him, her eyes glassy. I needed to find you. Find me? What for? To warn you. At that moment, folks throughout the black started screaming. In the distance, Rand heard shouts and whistles. Keeper whistles. The black was being raided. The trouble mounts for Rand and Ainsley in episode seven of *Torque* by Ty Drego. If you can't bear the wait, the full novel is available in paperback and ebook formats on Amazon.com. Thanks for listening.